Will you please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5? You will need a Bible to follow along on our message today. So these brothers have some Bibles. If you need one, get their attention as they make their way to the back. And they'll give you one of those Bibles that's marked for you at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. On October 12, 1975, a new church was launched in a theater in Palatine, Illinois. The innovation of this particular church was that it had canvassed the surrounding neighborhoods, asking non-churchgoers why they don't attend. And the answers included, the reasons we don't attend are boring music and long and boring and irrelevant sermons. So the founders of the church took the results of their survey and they designed the church to meet the desires of the non-Christians and non-church they had interviewed. The new format included rock music, even secular songs. The sermon was replaced with what they called the talk. And the themes of those talks were strictly topical. No mind-numbing, verse-by-verse studies through a book of the Bible. And all of that was accompanied and illustrated by entertaining skits. And the results of that were nothing short of phenomenal. Just two years after its founding, Willow Creek Community Church purchased 90 acres of land in South Barrington, Illinois. And they built a 4,500-seat auditorium on it. And the so-called seeker-sensitive approach to church growth and worship was born. They've since replaced the auditorium with one that seats 7,000, in which they have five services every weekend. But more important for the rest of us is that Willow Creek's influence was not limited to Illinois. Because they began to hold church growth conferences that were attended by pastors from all over the country who were eager to mimic their so-called success. They started something called the Willow Creek Association, which is comprised of churches that use the Willow Creek methodology. There are 11,000 churches in the association. Willow Creek and its philosophy of ministry has clearly had a profound effect on evangelical churches in America. But 30 years after its founding, Bill Hybels, the lead pastor at Willow, began to sense that something wasn't quite working. While they still had throngs of people attending on the weekends, the vast majority of the people who were attracted to those weekend services were not actually growing in their faith. They did a study of their congregation, and when the results came in, they were, in Heibel's words, quote, unbearably painful. He said, quote, we made a mistake, to which I say, really? He says, what we should have done when people became Christians was we should have started teaching them. Again, really? We should have started teaching them how to read their Bible and how to engage in spiritual disciplines. In other words, we should have discipled people. Go figure. But, you know, that raises a question. 
What makes anyone really think that folks who are attracted to a church that caters to their consumer and worldly tastes would care much at all about spiritual growth? So Willow Creek found itself in this dilemma. In any case, by the time Willow did its study 10 years ago, the damage to the larger church landscape in our country had already been done. Because not only are there the 11,000 churches that are in the association who are following this frankly unbiblical philosophy, very many of the large churches anywhere follow it, whether they are members of Willow Creek or not. I'm going to just mention a couple for you in our area, just so you know how this goes. We've got a couple of churches in our own area that are, in fact, members of the Willow Creek Association. Northridge, Metro South are members of the association. As an aside, and this is an aside, this is why I regret that we, CBC, did not have a connection with the former Grozio Baptist Church when that church was dying a few years ago. And they turned to Northridge to rescue it. So now there's a Northridge satellite on the island. There are many churches in that same situation every year. They're dying. They don't know what to do. So they turn to large churches that seem to be successful for help. We, our leadership, are keeping eyes open for opportunities to bring a biblical philosophy of ministry to churches that are in trouble. And I say to you all, if you hear of any of those, please let our leadership team know. All right, with all of that, why am I telling you this? Well, it's because the greatest damage that Willow Creek's philosophy has done to the church in America is that it has transformed what's considered acceptable in worship. Taking its cues from the world, the church has become worldly. And this matters greatly because God cares not just that he is worshipped, But he also cares how he is worshipped. As a matter of fact, God has even killed people for worshipping him in ways that he doesn't like. You go back to the first part of your Bible. And Aaron, the high priest, had two sons named Nadab and Abihu. The Bible says this. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord contrary to his command. So, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Now, you may think that's just the first part of our Bible when it it appears the God of the Old Testament was always in a bit of an angry mood. Surely the God of the New Testament, after Jesus, wouldn't do such a thing. Except you come to Acts chapter 5. And you have a story about a couple, a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who brought their offering, but they lied about the content of that offering. And in response to that, Peter said to them, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And the Bible says, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. That's the husband, that's Ananias. The narrative goes on and says, About three hours later, his wife Sapphira came in, not knowing what had happened. And she too lied. At that moment, she fell down at his, Peter's feet, and died. Great fear seized the whole church, 
and all who heard about these events. And further, in your New Testament, the Bible warns us about worshiping God in an acceptable way. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God, notice the word, acceptably. Now, what does that imply, friends? It's possible to worship God how? It's possible to worship God in an unacceptable manner. And an acceptable manner is this, with reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. So how do you think about worship? How do you prepare for worship? Are you offended by what has become of worship in evangelical churches in our day? Or do you think it's just another way of doing God's business? You see, friends, any church can be affected by this worldly approach to worship, even if it's not a member of the Willow Creek Association. And it can be so affected just by having people who think in worldly terms and then bring that perspective with them. What you do Monday through Saturday will determine what you want to hear and see at church on Sunday. And unfortunately, populist leaders are all too happy to accommodate the tastes and desires of the worldly crowd that they've attracted. If you imbibe, the worldly entertain, imbibe worldly entertainment during the week, if you have worldly conversations, if you think worldly thoughts, you will bring that to church with you on Sunday. Now, so far we've covered four chapters in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. And we've seen that Solomon, who wrote it, is telling us what life looks like from the limited earthbound perspective of what he calls quote, under the sun. And now at the beginning of chapter 5, he suddenly shifts to considering the effect that an under-the-sun life has on how one participates in the worship of God. You see, if you live life as if under the sun is all there is, then it will be impossible to bring a God-centered perspective to church. If you live during the week as if and under the sun, limited, earthbound perspective is all it is. When all there is, when you come to church, you're going to bring that with you and your expectations with it. It has been rightly said the problem is not the church being in the world. The problem is the world being in the church. And so we each need to ask ourselves: What are you bringing to church? What are you bringing? To worship. We're going to look at what God has to say about that in Ecclesiastes 5. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Our Father, we stand before you with our hearts quieted, with our minds attentive to what you have to say about this important topic, important because it's about you. Important because it's how about how we relate to you. It's important because you have much to say about it. 
So, Father, we ask you to grant us a willingness to not just hear, but to obey what you have said in your word. Make application of it to our lives so that we worship you Monday through Saturday and we come together then with hearts that are aligned with yours when we worship you on the Lord's day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have every Sunday an outline inserted in your program, an outline of the message. And I encourage you to take that out if you don't have it out as yet. Where we say, first of all, that we must be careful with worship. Be careful with worship. Now, when I say be careful, I mean we must be careful with the approach that we take. Approach worship with care. Or in the words of the title of today's message at the top of that outline, handle with care. And I say that because the opening words of verse 1 of chapter 5 say this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So here is God saying, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And I say in your outline, that means a couple of things. One, take care to be prepared. The context of chapter 5 is that of a worshiper who's walking into the house of God, the holy sanctuary. Now, in the days of Solomon, that would have been the temple in Jerusalem. But what is said here applies to any place that is made sacred by the gathering of God's people in his presence to worship him. There's a right way and a wrong way to do that. And the right way is found in verse 1. As you guard your steps when you go to the house of God, it then says, go near to listen. So when you come to church, the assumption is there will be something for you to hear. And that something is the word of the living God that is read and is preached. And the proclamation of the word is so important that it was the last instruction that Paul gave to his protege Timothy just before Paul was executed for preaching the gospel. In the last chapter of the last letter that Paul would ever write, he said this, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, Timothy. Preach the word. And in that context, Paul also showed that what I said earlier about the seeker-sensitive approach to church is not really new. Because the next verse, he says this to Timothy 2,000 years ago. The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. You see, friends, seeker-sensitive is really not new. There have always been and there always will be pastors who tailor their message to make it palatable to people. What's new is the audacity to make appeal to itching ears a published and promoted philosophy of ministry. And the conclusion many have had over four decades now is it must be right because it works. Verse 1 says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen 
rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. If we're going to guard our steps when we come to church, if we're going to take care to worship God in a way that's fitting, then we need to come prepared to hear the word. Now, friends, dear CBC friends, I must tell you that we have a bit of a problem with this at our church. Too many of us rush into worship at the last minute. Others stay out and up too late on Saturday to give full attention to God's word. Still others have arguments with their family and with other cars on the road on the way. So it's impossible to come to worship in a proper frame of mind. You see, if worship is important, then it's important enough to prepare for. To prepare for the night before and the morning of. And to get to it on time. Now, if you were late today, I don't know that. Since I sit up front and my back is to you, so I'm not picking on you. I know that things happen to make us late beyond our control. I know when you have little ones, it's very hard to get everybody packed up and breakfast and in the car and all of that. But not every week. And not even most weeks. Now we give you a little bit of a buffer. We've got the announcements. And then we have the call to worship after that. And I think many of us get in the mindset that as long as I get there by the time of the call to worship, which is basically true, But we don't even always do that. I urge you, friends, to give consideration to your preparation for worship so that you come prepared to hear. But it's not just having an awake and alert mind to take in the words that are read and spoken. But it's a matter of responding appropriately to what you hear because the word translated listen in verse 1 means to obey. 1 Samuel chapter 15 The Bible says to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And the Hebrew word translated obey in that passage is the same as our word translated listen in Ecclesiastes 5. The Bible warns us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so I ask you, as we each should ask ourselves, do we come to church every week eager to discover what we can apply to our lives? Is it resonating in your heart right now to apply even what's been said already about preparation for worship? Is everybody awake? Is everybody hearing? Is everybody open to applying? We must approach worship carefully. That requires that we're prepared. And also, I say in your outline, that we take care not only to be prepared, but to be humble. Take care to be humble. Go near to listen with the intent of obeying rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Now the sacrifice, the worship of fools is ritual. Going through the motions without considering the reason for which we do it And especially the ultimate reason for which we worship, namely the sacrifice of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for us. If we fix our minds upon Christ and what He has done for us, then we will be humbled before the Lord, considering our sin and thanking God for His forgiveness, rather than being like the fool who's described here, 
who does not think about his own sin before a holy God. It says he does not know. This is willful ignorance that he has done wrong. And so he shows up and he just goes through the routine. And God says this through David in Psalm number 51. You do not delight in sacrifice. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are these, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, that's the person who comes in prepared, thinking about it, but also humbly because they thought about it. They thought about who it is that we stand before and we worship. They think about who we are in relation to this holy God. And we cannot then, when we do that, be but humbled. You remember Jesus' story of two men who went to the temple. And one man stood and he prayed about all of his own virtues. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Then another man would not so much as look up, Jesus said, but he just beat his breasts and he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He humbled himself. He thought about in whose presence he was and the magnitude of what was taking place in that worship. And Jesus said, only that man went away justified that day. One preacher said this, the damned think they are good, but the saved know that they are wicked. The damned believe the kingdom of God is for those who are worthy of it. The saved know that the kingdom of God is for those who realize how unworthy they are. The damned believe eternal life is earned. The saved know it is a gift. The damned seek God's commendation. The saved seek his forgiveness. This fool is one who has not thought about himself in relation to a holy God. And he's one who comes with a frivolous approach to God. Notice that word sacrifice in verse 1. One preacher has commented on it. There are a number of words in the Old Testament translated sacrifice. One of them is used of a burnt offering for sin. Another for a grain offering. But the one that's used here is often used to describe a special festive offering. It was an offering on an occasion of great joy. They would bring an animal and sacrifice it. And a portion would go to the priest and the rest was retained by the worshipers for a festive meal, a party. And the fool is the one who focuses on the festive meal. The fool was preoccupied with the offering that would fill his belly. Worship for him was that which provided something for him rather than something for his God. And this is the trend of American Christianity, and it's impacted so many ministries. The comment is often heard from American Christians, I'm, not, I'm just not being fed spiritually. Certainly there are, unfortunately, many churches that fail to preach and teach God's word in an accurate and relevant way. But I've heard that said many times of churches where the word of God is faithfully taught every week. So what's going on here? What I find is that a statement like that often has little to do with the teaching and preaching. Instead, people want us to have a certain length of sermon or want to hear what they feel they need and on it goes. Typically, someone like like that wants to leave feeling good rather than knowing more about God. 
You see, friends, the fool is concerned with the offering that he can enjoy. Give me something that I like. Give me a good feeling. Let's party. That is self-serving and foolish worship. Be careful with worship. That's what verse 1 is saying. Be on guard when you go into the house of God. Be careful with worship. But I say in your outline. Our passage tells us as well, be careful with prayer. Now I'll be quicker with these next three because they really flow from that first one. Verse 2, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. That is, when we speak to God, we should give consideration to what we say and to whom we're saying it. So I say in your outline, when we come to pray before God, we should take care to be thoughtful. We should think about the fact that's stated in verse 2. Verse 2 says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. (laughs) We should think about that. When we come and pray to God, he's the one is in heaven and I'm down here. And we should only pray in terms that are appropriate to that. So verse two says, so let your words be few. Now, this is referring to what is called the creator creature distinction. God is the one on the throne and it is we who were made for him, not the other way around. And that one consideration would transform the way many of us pray because it would move us from, in effect, ordering God around as our servant to instead choosing our words carefully in light of his greatness and his goodness. Our prayers would contain generous times of praise to God for his character rather than being entirely comprised of our list of requests and demands. Do you see, if I come into the presence of God, To pray to him and I think about who he is and he's the one who's in heaven and I'm here. I think about myself in relation to him. I cannot but praise him for who he is and then I bring my request to him. So we must be careful to be thoughtful in prayer and take care to be, I say in your outline, reverent. Verse 3, a dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. What this is saying is that it's our tendency to drift into a fantasy world when there are difficult times. Just like it's our nature to dream during times of trouble, it's the fool's nature to babble on in the presence of God. That's the comparison. Having not given due consideration to who it is we're addressing, we can easily slip into irreverence. You see, friends, even though it is a blessed truth that God is our Father, thanks be to God. He's even our Abba Father. That's a term of intimate relationship used in the Bible. Even though that's true, it always remains the case that he is different than any human being and he should be approached accordingly. Jesus gave the model prayer in what we call the Lord's Prayer. As you've heard me say, it's really the disciples' prayer. Because it's not a prayer the Lord prayed. The Lord was telling them how to pray. In that prayer, he said, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses. Jesus can't even pray that prayer. He has no debts and trespasses. It was a prayer for us to pray. And Jesus gives the disciples prayer. 
And he says, approach God this way, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Indeed, the Bible tells us he's our Abba Father, but that's our relationship, not our approach. We are bidden to come to him because we're his children with full knowledge that he hears us and he invites us to come into his presence because of Jesus. But how does that knowledge affect how we address him? And for many people, it means that I have a casual relationship with God. Uh Uh-uh. Almost a sort of, what's up, Pop? God's rad. He's my dad. But, you know, if you look at the prayers of the Apostle Paul, the very one who, by the way, told us that we have this Abba-Father relationship in two of his letters, what you see is reverence. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul said, I kneel. Before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He not only addressed God reverently, but the content of his prayers were not frivolous. He goes on, he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Do you see, friends, how if we think about who God is and who we are in relation to him, it transforms the way we go about our interactions with him? Be careful with worship. Be careful with prayer. And in your outline, be careful with promises. Verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. And so I say in your outline, as we make commitments to the Lord, we should take care to be faithful in those. We should take care to be faithful. How many times have you sat in church and in your heart you've told God all the great things you're going to do for him and his mission and then failed to follow through? This common failure is rooted in what we saw earlier, the mistake of not thinking about God as who he is and who we are now in relation to him. If we regularly contemplated the holiness of God, now hear me, friends, if we regularly contemplated the holiness of God, our sinfulness before him, and yet the fact that we are adopted into his family due entirely to what he has done for us, if we regularly thought that way, we would have no trouble aligning our lives to serve him joyfully and sacrificially. The commitments we make and break are made out of guilt. The commitments we keep are made out of gratitude. And every person here has ample reason, infinite reason for gratitude to God. You remember the story of Jonah. Jonah had to be reminded of why he should be grateful to God. 
God told Jonah, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. Jonah did not want to go, as you know. Many people think Jonah did not want to go because the Ninevites were a fierce people. He was afraid of them. It's not the reason. The reason is he so despised the Ninevites and so thought of himself as self-righteous and more worthy of God's mercy than them that he didn't want to have the word of God given to them so that they would repent. He didn't want to see them repent. He didn't like them. That's what he says in chapter 4 at the end of the book. But you remember God intervened. Jonah was cast overboard on the ship. He was swallowed by a great fish. Then he was, his life was saved. He was going down for the third time, as it were. He thought he was going to die. And he praises God for saving his life. And he says this, What I have vowed, I will make good. But you see, he made good on the vow after he was reminded of all he had to be thankful for. We should take care to be faithful in our promises to the Lord. And then, I say in your outline, to be truthful in those promises. Take care to be truthful. Verse 6, do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? You see, there is the induced guilt that motivates broken promises. But then there's the real guilt of saying what you do not mean. If you have to conjure up the desire to serve God strictly out of duty rather than out of delight in Him, then you will find yourself saying things and not following through and then have, in effect, lied and sinned. The illustration here is of someone who made a commitment to an official at the temple, but later when the heat is off, you know, it was an emotional thing. I was going through some stuff. I made some promises to God, but now the, the heat's off. How many people do that? The heat's off. The guilt has subsided. He then takes it back. My vow was a mistake. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says about this passage, it's about, quote, the, the well-meaning person who likes a good sing, turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with half an ear and never gets around to what he has volunteered to do for God. Be careful with worship, with prayer, with your promises, and lastly, with priorities. Verse 7 says this, Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. All of the problems mentioned in verses 2 through 6 flow from verse 1. And that's why I used most of our time on verse 1. You see, the reason we talk to God in a flippant and self-centered way, the reason that we make promises that are not motivated by an enthusiasm for God and His glory and so those promises fail, the reason for these is because we are not seeing and savoring God for who He is. And the answer to that in verse 7 is to fear God. That is to revere Him. It practically means this, that He is first consideration in all our decisions and at all times. A failure to lift God high in our thoughts and desires results in His dethronement. 
and by default to our enthronement. We, in practice, replace him with us. We replace his objectives with ours. And one preacher has helpfully listed a number of contrasts between the God-centered and man-centered approaches. Self-interest craves recognition. The fear of God revels in his glory. Self-interest lives for the moment. The fear of God lives for eternity. Self-interest is driven by desire. The fear of God is driven by principle. Self-interest follows experience. The fear of God stands for truth. Self-interest seeks pleasure. The fear of God delights in his pleasure. Self-interest uses God to acquire things. The fear of God uses things to serve God. Self-interest amasses wealth. The fear of God gives it away. Self-interest loves God because of his blessings. The fear of God blesses God for who he is. Self-interest views life as good and bad. The fear of God views life as only good. Self-interest works for personal empires. The fear of God works only for his kingdom. Self-interest takes pride in our own righteousness. The fear of God is stricken with humility because of the righteousness that he alone can give. Self-interest longs above all for personal gratification. The fear of God longs above all for his exaltation. You see, friends, the very first verse of the Bible says this. In the beginning, God. And at the end of your Bible in the book of Revelation, Jesus said this. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and I am the end. And in between, it is all about the glory of God. This world and your life and my life were made to be centered on God. When our lives are centered on God, then we can be careful in the way we approach him, the way we worship him, the way we pray and the promises that we make and in the priorities that govern our lives. Your take home truth then is this. A meaningful life is intentionally centered on God. Intentionally centered on God. Now we're going to pray in just a moment. But I wonder if there might be people in this room who take this flippant approach toward God, toward worship, toward prayer, toward our priorities in life. I wonder if that's the case because, in fact, we don't have a relationship with him. It all starts with a relationship with God. And then we mature in that relationship with God. That relationship with God begins with a humility that says... I know that I'm a sinner. You realize that you're a sinner. You recognize that God has the solution for your sin in the death of Jesus on the cross. And you repent of your sin. I'm going to go your way, God, not my way. No longer self-centered, God-centered. I give my life to you. So when we bow and pray, those of us who know God but we feel the sting of his conviction... Because we recognize that we are often too flippant about him and with him. 
If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the Bible says. Let's do that. And for those who do not know God through the Lord Jesus Christ, receive him by praying from your heart to God in your own words. Lord, I'm a sinner. I see it in so many ways. I could never count my sin. But I believe Jesus covered all of it, past, present, and future. So I ask you to forgive me, and I give my life to you in gratitude for what you have done. I ask you to save me and to change me from this day forward. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this privilege of gathering as your people in your presence on the Lord's day. A hallowed time. A set-apart time, a sacred time. Thank you for giving us the privilege of worshiping. And thank you that we can come near to you. We can approach your throne with confidence, as we read earlier. But all of this is because of you. All of this is because of our high priest, the Lord Jesus. And we can only have this relationship with you and be your people in your family if we have first come to you through the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I ask you, oh, Spirit, to move upon the hearts of some in this room who may have come here not having a relationship with the Lord Jesus, and therefore they are unmoved by these things of God. That your Holy Spirit then will indwell them so that your heart beats with theirs now, so that they mimic your desires and they become their desires. Your priorities become their priorities. And, oh, Lord, for those of us who do know you but are so often forgetful hearers, we ask you to forgive us. I pray that many of my brothers and sisters are recognizing that we become casual in our relationship with you. May commitments, true commitments, be made out of gratitude to you. Therefore, they will not be broken. And as a result, you will be glorified. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.